Welcome to Avatar with Academics. My name is Sam Mulberry, and I have never watched Avatar The Last Airbender. And I'm Annie Berglund, and I have watched it before. Annie, we have made it to Book to Earth, Chapter 15, Tales of Ba Sing Se. I have been waiting this whole time, Sam. This, is this... Is it accurate to say this is one of your favorite episodes or this is your favorite episode? This is my favorite episode. It is. Which um, I think I told you that and maybe I gave you some high expectations because what is delivered is not something that carries on really any story arc. There's not really any developments, especially coming after what we just saw with it's yeah with it's, brainwashing and yeah it's very it's a very unique episode. I mean, it's framed. We can just talk about it. It's, yeah, it's framed around these separate stories, mm-hmm. right? Each character or pairing of characters has their own tale in Bossing Say. Yeah, um, and each one is is kind of beautifully rendered, and and they're and they're also different, right? It reminds me of. Um, this is going to be a weird, a weird reference, uh, but it, it reminds me of like in the '90s. I know there were movies where they would be like, "Let's get four directors together," like uh, the movie Four Rooms, right? Let's get four directors together, and each one is going to direct their own movie that's taking place in this hotel, and then the movie will be all of these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but those, though, every project like that has this like intercutting of like, oh, this one character shows up in each one, or this, you know, like there's this. I don't think there's any blending of the stories, right? There's, right. Because um, I watched it thinking thinking that's what it was going to be. So I kept looking in the background for like, oh, do I see Iroh in the background of this story or that story? And that's not what they're up to. Yeah, I really like some of my favorite books are a series of short stories. And I really like when they aren't connected because it forces me to think about why the author chose those ones. to Like why they sure. chose the person in that environment. It reminds me of um, more... Uh, like a recent movie I watched, Ball- The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Is that? That's right, right? Yeah. Yeah. On Netflix, uh, where it, it, it's like westerns um, in short stories. And again, they're not really connected, but thematically, obviously, they are. And um, that's why I really like this. Yeah, I, I loved it. I love whenever shows get a little experimental, where it's mm-hmm. like, we're going to break the form of what we normally do. I imagine this was very fun in the meeting when they said, and I, uh, I'm guessing this idea was out there for a while, and they finally were like, okay, now we've built up enough goodwill, we can pull the trigger on yeah. this. Now, I will say, the the issue that I had with it, is that if we think about it in relationship to the narrative arc, we sometimes talk about episodes that seem a little out of time. Mm. This is not out of time because of the set. The setting puts it squarely like they have to be in Bossing Say to do this. And I think there is something important about this being in Bossing Say. The the weird part though is like the last episode was so troubling, like what happened, and this just there even though these stories can, some of them are very sad. Right. There's a kind of a lightness to this episode. Yep. And it's like, I don't imagine that they left that library with um, uh, with the, the leader of the Dai Li. <laughs> and like, now they went and had these own their own little adventures in the city. Like, it's like that, I don't feel the, it feels incongruent a little bit. Sure. To really watch these uh, one after the other. Um, I also wonder, like, it seems to be that they are going to be closely watched. So I'm wondering, as they're doing all of these things, are they being closely watched mm-hmm. by the Dai Li? Um, so, so that like that that jumped out at me. At the same time, each story is very beautiful. I I almost wonder if they um, they could have done Tales of Bossing say 
and not had them center around our main characters yeah. so much, but around other people in the city and maybe have our main characters as background characters. I don't want to give them notes uh, because I actually do love this episode. Um, everything I want to get all my like, <laughs> like, uh, not negativity exactly, mm. but I want to get all these the criticisms out because I wanted I want to approach this each of these stories with the love that it deserves. Right. But I will say that was the one part that felt like that was the last one was too heavy to then just do this. Yes. And I almost wish and again, I don't know the full arc of where this is going. I almost wish that they could have at the end of the drill mm. made it to Bossing say and made it a little less dystopian with Judy. You could have done a little, but, but put that into the drill episode. You shorten the drill episode up so that we end with them at the house. Mm. And it's like, oh, maybe there's some darkness around the corners, but who knows? Then we get Tales of Ba Sing Se. Mm-hmm. Then we get... The brainwashing, the jet. Then we the, get, yeah. The, yeah, then we get... Uh, uh, City of Walls and Secrets afterward. I mean, you'd, you'd have to do some narrative stuff sure. to make that work. Because I would have loved if, like, their initial, if, if Tales of Bossing Say was their initial impressions of Bossing Say. Yeah. You know? Um, and then we got, I don't know how to exactly do that. Yeah. Narrative arc wise. Um, that being said, as a almost bottle episode, <laughs> this is beautifully done. It is, I agree. It is a tone shift for sure, like a stark tone. Tone shift. And, and a narrative shift. I mean, we yeah. like like it is. It doesn't. It seem strange that we see Aang just like flying around doing stuff with animals. When yeah. It's like, wait, you have two missions at this, and now you're doing that. Like that seems a. But but if we just accept them for what they are, I think they're really wonderful. Yeah, and I think I like that the. I'm gonna say I like that it it's in the order it's in because I like that we Sell get me on it. we we get utter darkness, the eeriest moment. And that's a theme of the Earth Kingdom, right? Is like the the baby hope is born in the darkness, right? And like there will be at one point we see Iroh with a flower in his hand and, and he puts it in the shade and it blooms. And like I think that is the overarching theme of every single short story here is like in the insecurities that these characters have or in the things that plague them on the day to day, they can still like grow and bloom out of them. So I think it's, I like that it went dark and then all of a sudden we have like them finding hope or finding growth within that. Absolutely. I I, I, I love that. It almost feels like this is like alternate universe though, because uh-huh. it's like, I, I assume the next episode is going to pick up on, pick up from where mm-hmm. City of Walls and Secrets left. Mm-hmm. So this, so this it just narratively fits in a weird in a right. in a weird spot, but I love the ambition of this project. Yes, um, I love that it highlights the writers. Yes, right because each one is written by a different writer, and they and their names appear like within the episode, like yeah. the tale of Iroh, and it has who the writers are. I love that. I think that's really cool. Yeah, me too. And honestly, they're giving us what we wanted from the beginning, which was I want like a little, I want a TV show or like a series about this yeah. one person in this environment. And finally, we get a little of it. And yeah, I'm like oh, more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say this proves that we can have nice things sometimes. Right. I know it's yeah. so nice. Yeah. So let's well, let's jump yeah. into the episode <laughs> instead of just talk about it in these vague terms. Okay, so we start out with again. There's six tales that we start with. So um, there's a tale of Toph and Katara. And uh, we see uh, this is the only uh, uh, the only tale that is surrounded by two characters right. uh, that we know. So 
um, the gang is getting ready for the day. It's morning time. Aang stands in the bathroom and there's like steam rising around this large ornate mirror. And we see him shaving his head. <laughs> Which was interesting because I think like, yes, he's bald. I never thought of him having hair. I just assume like the air nomads just didn't have hair. Yeah. Uh, and then it makes me wonder like, how often does he need to do this? <laughs> if he didn't do it, like... Could he grow hair? Yeah, because it would be like, uh, if he didn't do it, it would probably look like Zuko's kind of messy short hair that he has right now. Right, right. I just, it just, I mean, it's obvious he's a human being, he has hair, but it just, <laughs> like, it just didn't occur to me. We've never seen him shave his head. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so Sokka then stands next to him, and he's eyeing his own stubble on his upper lip, and stubble is like... It's a kind word for like the couple hairs that he has kind of floating above. We have a we have a family name for the bad like Ooh. teenage mustache. Um I can't ex- I think it I think this came from uh we like to play the game Balderdash. Oh then, sure. But often the problem is instead of learning the actual names of the words, we learn the the best definitions we came up with and we once had the word snash. Mm. And we've decided that that's what like a bad teenage mustache is. Yeah. Like, so like Within our family, we will just refer to somebody as having a snash, and we know exactly what that means. It is exactly what Sokka has here, is a snash. That's the perfect word for it. Yeah, and he he shaves it off kind of with his machete. He, like, hacks at the little hairs on his upper lip. Which actually makes me happy, too, that I don't want to see Sokka at this point try to grow a mustache, so I'm glad he's shaving. Yeah, me too. And he points and winks at himself in the mirror, happy with his appearance. And then Katara um, is standing next to them, and he... And she attaches her two strands of hair uh, in the front of her head to her ponytail in the back. So she creates the hair loopies that I'm have... I'm so glad we learned exactly how those work. Now. Right. I know. Yeah. She's not Katara without them, truly. Um, I also just loved the, the, the image of the three of them kind of lined up at the sink getting getting ready for the day. Yes. This whole episode is like the day-to-day. Um, and then Momo stands on a counter nearby and even he is licking his paws and cleaning his face. And then we realize, oh, there's one person missing. And so we cut to Toph um, lying on her stomach on a bed mat. And she's still asleep and her arms and legs are kind of sprawled out. Her hair is wild, almost like a, like an afro kind of um, like size. And Katara opens the door to Toph, um, who's sleeping. And Katara gasps, gasps at the sight of her and says, Toph, aren't you going to get ready for the day? And Toph starts and she lifts her head and her hair is wild and she's half asleep and she spits phlegm across the room into a jar. It was a spittoon. Yes, a spittoon. Um, I don't know if it was intended for that to be a spittoon, but she made it one. And she stands up in her pajamas and brushes off the dust from the ground and she declares, I'm ready. And Katara says, you're not going to wash up. You got a lot of, a little dirt on, well, everywhere, actually. And Toph said, you call it dirt, I call it a healthy coating of earth. And Katara excitedly proclaims that they should have a girl's day out. But Toph shrugs. She's kind of uncertain about the idea. So the interesting thing about this is, is like, I buy that Toph doesn't want to, like, put herself together. But she has every other day of this show. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like, they've been sleeping up on, like, mountaintops and all of this, and she yeah, she has. So it's interesting, you know, now that she's in the city, now it's like, yeah, now I don't want to play by the rules of the city. Right. And uh, 
truth be told, they're kind of stuck in their own quarantine. And I know after a couple weeks of quarantine, I looked haggard. Oh, I hadn't thought of this <laughs> through the lens of like quarantine. You were right. That's right? really interesting to think about. So outside, the girls, uh, they escape their, their home they've been in and they walk up to this elaborate multi-story spa. It reminded me of some of the saunas in Korea. And it's called the Fancy Ladies Day Spa. Love the name. Yeah. Wow. Would love to go there. And uh, they they approach just as these giggling, beautiful, and fancy ladies exit the building. And Katara says, you ready for some serious pampering? And Toph answers, sure, as long as they don't touch my feet. So then inside, the girls are dressed in Earth Kingdom spa robes, and they move from room to room and service to service. And it's really fun to be able to see these different rooms um, scene to scene. So first they get pedicures, and there are two technicians that are holding down a squirming Toph um, in the chair while another woman is scrubbing at Toph's feet furiously and sweating and trying to remove it's the like dirt. It's like sanding at her feet. Yes. Uh, and we see a shot of the hallway then as Toph yells and the wall explodes and the nail technician flies through the wall and collapses in the hallway because Toph uh, supposedly kicked her out of the way. Um, how unsettling must like somebody <laughs> messing with her feet be though? Yeah. I mean, like, that is that is the main way she, like, interacts with the world. Yeah. I mean, she, she can do it with her hands, too, but, like, but her feet are the things which are firmly planted. So, I kind of felt bad for her. Right. This. At the same time, have you ever gotten a pedicure? I have, and they're lovely, but ticklish. Oh, I'm a huge pedicure fan. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm all in. They're, they are so nice. Like Toph, I feel like, please, um, my apologies for the state of myself right 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 <laughs> that you have to deal with but uh, I'm, I'm the one that gets really tickly from it so then we go to the next room and this is the baths and the two girls are laying in mud baths next to each other uh, with their mud masks on and these cucumber slices over their eyes looking real relaxed and uh, an employee brings them some fresh towels and Toph bends her face um, the mud on her face to make the cucumber eyes pop out at the employee and scare her off. And the girls laugh at her misfortune. So I, I got to think like a mud bath must be pretty great for Toph. Right. Yeah. I mean, she she was saying before she likes a, a healthy coating of earth. Yeah. Yeah. Her. Yeah. Although I wonder, can you not feel the vibrations as well? So maybe it's like sensory deprivation a little bit. Oh, but, yeah. But maybe that's good. Maybe it's soothing. Yeah. So then the next room that they're in is finally the sauna. And Toph and Guitar sit across from each other in the sauna, and they're both using their bending to make it the, the supreme experience. So Toph is earth bending stones into the fire in front of them, and Katara then bends water from a nearby bowl to splash onto the rocks and steam up the room. And there's lots of sighs, and they're very happy. I love the the teamwork, right? That they're using their they're each using their particular powers to, yeah. to do this. And like they've uh, Toph has embraced what they're doing at this point. Yeah, exactly. And so they want walk outside of the spa, spa and each of them has fresh hairstyles and bright makeup caked on their faces and they're smiling. The makeup is not... It's a bit much. Yeah. Yes, it is a bit... The blue eyeshadow is a they little... They look great, though, at the same time. little shocking. But yeah, yeah, they're feeling great about themselves. So Toph said that she enjoyed herself and she said, I'm not usually into that stuff, but I actually feel girly. And so the two of them walk across a bridge passing over a stream... 
And they pass by a group of three teenage girls um, who are walking from the other side. And they're wearing stylish green dresses. They're holding parasols. They look to be a little bit older than Katara and definitely um, affluent. What's interesting is they they remind me, and they're even framed in shots a little bit like Azula and the Mean Girls. Yeah. Yeah, it's like like a... uh... High-status Earth Kingdom version of that. Absolutely. And uh, one of the girls, she seems like the ringleader, the Azula of them, perhaps. She says, wow, great makeup to Toph as they cross each other on the bridge. And then she adds, for a clown. And the three girls laugh at Toph while Katara ushers her away and she's trying to console her. You know, don't listen to those girls. And the second girl says, I think she looks cute. Like that time we put a sweater on your pet poodle monkey. And they laugh again. And Toph stops at the end of the bridge, and she swings around, and she congratulates them very dryly for their joke, uh, before she then bends the earth underneath them on the bridge and causes the girls to fall straight down into the shallow stream. And Katara says, now that was funny, and sends them flying in a wave of water down the river. So what I love is we saw the um, the teamwork in the sauna, yeah. right? And then we get the teamwork again here. And neither of them has to say a word. Yep. Yep. So the friends then continue walking through the town and Toph confides in Katar and says, one of the good things about being blind is that I don't have to waste my time worrying about appearances. I don't care what I look like. But she falters and she says, I'm not looking for anyone's approval. I know who I am. And her eyes well up with tears. And Katar says, that's what I admire about you, Toph. You're strong and confident and self-assured. And I know it doesn't matter but you're really pretty. And Toph blushes and smiles and said she'd say, you know, the same compliment to her, but she doesn't know what Katara looks like. And so then both the girls laugh. Toph smacks Katara's arm playfully and they continue walking down the street. So what I want to do with this episode is after each tale, maybe like what talk a little bit about it. So if that's okay, like, like what does this, what does this story tell you about Toph and or Katara? I will say the first time I watched it, I did not like their story at all because it felt to me like they were trying to force some kind of feminine characteristics on two characters who don't necessarily fall into mm-hmm. that or have ever seemed to care much about it. Um, but I think that that's like kind of a shallow way of looking at it. And I, I like it a lot more now because, again, I think it's it's that idea of like, they're in a dark place and this is something that I mean, we see strong Toph all the time, mm-hmm. strong, capable, self-assured. And then there's one weak point though. There's something that like continues to nag at her and it's her appearance. I um, mean, even though she says it doesn't bother her, we can tell it does because she can't even get the sentence out of her mouth without starting mm-hmm. to cry. And yet, even when she has that insecurity, she's able to, through the help of Katara, start to overcome that and to realize that she has all these other qualities that she is certain about herself Mm -hmm. and they're more powerful than any of these like surface level concerns. I I really like it. I also, I also like how, um, even though Katara is not, uh, you know, girly girl in that kind of way, she is much more so than Toph is. Like, she's interested in the, like, let's go, let's go have a makeover kind yeah. of thing. So, like, that Toph is willing to go along with Katara and, like, find joy in it. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the episode, or at the end of the story, when the, the, the mean girls are there, right, that, that it's like, then Katara gets involved with what Toph likes to do, which yeah. is, like, 
torture them you know right. like it's like I, like the, they find joy with each other and like it's like they get to do each other's thing with them because yeah. katara is not the type of person who um on her own she's probably not sending that wave at those girls but it's like oh well Toph, Toph went with me here. I'm going to go with Toph yeah. there. And I, I like that. They're both fiercely loyal for for their friends. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fun to, to think of the arc and at the start when Katara really wants Toph to be a girl with her, right? And like, mm-hmm. it's so nice to have another girl around. And then they fight for the whole episode. And to now have them like, like step into each other's shoes and see each other for who they are, I, I really like it. And I bet that... In her previous life, Toph had spa days yes. with her mother or arranged by her mother, and she probably never enjoyed them. <laughs> and this, she had the same thing, but because she was with Katara, that it became this thing that she actually really enjoyed and mm-hmm. had fun with. Yeah. it's And it's good to see them have fun. Again, we get to have nice things. Leah, yeah. And they get to have nice things at it, times. It reminds me of when they were in the desert and then they, they were deciding their vacation spots. It's like, oh, this seems out of place, but I, I guess they deserve it. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> they, they've been through a lot. Okay, so should we go to the next Let's tale? Let's do it. All right. So now we have the tale of Iroh. I will say, Sam, I cry every time I, w- I watch this five minutes <laughs> story about Iroh. I could see that. I, I I will say I've watched this a couple times. I haven't. Um, it is moving though. Yes, for sure. So um, Iroh walks through a Bossing Say market, which is like finally we get to see thrifting Iroh. And at midday, he um, stops at a stall with a woven picnic basket on display, and he admires it greatly. And the shopkeeper suggests that he buy a lavender picnic basket if he's shopping for a romantic occasion. And Iroh says good-naturedly, no, it's not a romantic picnic, but it is a special occasion nonetheless. And he buys the original basket with a gold piece and then takes a couple steps away from the stall, but notices a ceramic vase with a single drooping flower inside. And he pushes the vase out of the sun and into the shade of the stall, remarking to the shopkeeper, the moonflower likes partial shade. And the flower grows immediately, and its petals bloom as Iroh bows and he walks off. And then uh, he's at an instrument store later down, maybe thinking of restarting the music nights. Yeah, maybe maybe they're going to do like an open mic in the tea shop. Oh, that would be amazing. Wouldn't it? I would love that. He uh, he sees some stringed instruments uh, when he hears a child crying behind him. And there's a young boy. He's like three or four years old. Mm-hmm. He's standing in the street and wiping his eyes as he wails, and his mom bends down to comfort him. And in the boy's hand is a toy doll of an Earth Kingdom soldier. And the boy is still crying, um, but he kind of stops a little bit as he hears Iroh walking towards them, playing a lute that apparently he purchased in that time. And he sings a song, and the lyrics are, Leaves from the vine falling so slow, like fragile tiny shells drifting in the foam. Little soldier boy, come marching home. Brave soldier boy, come marching home. And Iroh bends down to the child and smiles as he sings the last couple lines. And the boy is confused at first at this old man approaching him and singing, but then his confusion turns into a smile. And he tugs at Iroh's beard kind of mm, sharply, uh, but in good fun and laughs. And then he and his mom walk away. It's interesting because you, you talked about, you know, loving watching Thrifting Iroh and we've ta- we've commented, you know, how we would watch a whole a whole sh- series on that. And, and I and I definitely would. I just I also realize like we don't get to spend that much time with Iroh 
where Iroh is kind of in charge of what he wants to do. Like, yeah. There's a lot of, okay, we're on the ship, we're doing this, or Zuko's doing this, and Iroh is teaching or trying to, like, move him in this direction or that direction. But I I do, like, I feel like I, I could, I would benefit from, like, it would be therapeutic to watch, like, a an hour-long Iroh just walks through the city and... You know, it, it, it doesn't need, that doesn't all need to be as poignant as him singing to this little boy. Yeah. But like, like just him looking at different objects in the shops, like as much, like it would be fun to watch. It would also be like very calming and therapeutic. Yeah. And that he, yeah, he finds worth in the everyday little mm-hmm. things. And he, in like life, he lets life happen to him, which I think some people could see as a negative, but you're right, like super therapeutic. Yeah. To just watch him go about his day. Yeah. And, um, and like, in he like lends perspective to everything. Yes. He's, t- this is seriously just a tale of him helping different people. Mm-hmm. And it's so, su- and you're like, oh, I bet he does this every day. Like, I bet this is Iroh all the time when he's because, not with Zuko. Because we see him do this with Zuko, but yeah. I guess I, part of me was like, well, yeah, but that's because he's, you know, Iroh or he's Zuko's uncle. But then I think about the conversation he had with Toph mm-hmm. and like that sort of felt like that. And, yeah, I, I feel like I just want Iroh untethered from responsibilities so we can just see where he goes. Yes, exactly. So Iroh, then he leaves the market, which I was a little sad about. But he walks down the side streets of Ba Sing Se and he stops and watches a group of preteen boys that are playing a version of like Earth Kingdom soccer, which is where they actually don't even touch the soccer ball, but they bend the earth to make it move. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And they lose control of the ball, though, as they bend the earth under it, and it flies right at Iroh's face, who ducks just in time, and the ball then crashes through a window behind him. And the homeowner inside yells, hey, and the boys shake in fear, and they kind of congregate towards Iroh, and they look to him for help, and he gives them some sage advice. He says, it is usually best to admit mistakes when they occur and to seek to restore honor. But then a massive, like, super ripped man approaches and he takes up the entire frame of the window and he threatens when i get through with you the window won't be the only thing that's broken so then iroh adds but not this time and then he tells the kids to run and he and the boys scatter and they race through the streets to safety it made me think about like what was iroh like as a little boy (laughs) yes yeah like don't you just want to i just want to see that me too he catches his breath in a nearby alleyway And a tall, slim man in ragged clothes sneaks up on him from behind and wields a knife at him. And he's trying to mug him. And Iroh looks down, though, and notices that he has a poor stance. And he gives him some advice. And he says, with a poor stance, you are unbalanced and can be easily knocked over. And in one swift move, Iroh grabs the robber's knife and pushes him to the ground. But then he extends a hand and helps him up off the ground, hands him back his knife, and instructs him on how to make a more solid fighting stance. And uh, as he does so, he says, much better. But to tell you the truth, you don't look like the criminal type. And the man shrugs and says, I'm just confused, (laughs) which was great. And later we see them in the same alley and Iroh is pouring tea for the robber. And they're seated uh, seated down uh, in the dirt and they chat about the robber's plan for the future. And Iroh explains that he thinks he would make an excellent masseuse, which is the robber's dream. And the robber says, no one has ever believed in me. And Iroh says, while it is always best to believe in oneself, a little help from others can be a great blessing. You know, today we talked about, and in class, we talked about desert monasticism. 
and and par- part of this story makes me think of like the stories of the desert fathers and mothers like they're these like little short like parable-esque stories mm. and i feel like and 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 i know Tom, thomas merton um wrote books about where he translated that stuff and then he also wrote books of like um kind of uh asian philosophy you know and 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 like about about monks in that culture and kind of the wisdom of of the east and the wisdom of the desert and they're very paralleled mm. um and this like it just makes me think of that like iroh would have been a great desert monk as well like like for everything he has this um sort of perfect way of very concisely laying the truth out Mm -hmm. you know even in the thing with the boys it's like what he says is true about honor and what he says about running is also true yeah and he also isn't worried about anything that could happen to him like any earthly like any yeah any any want or desire or need like he he knows it'll be fulfilled he's not really concerned yeah uh so then uh we see him at sunset and he finally gets to where he wants to go. So the whole day is kind of just things are happening to him. But now it's it's his turn. And we see Iroh walk out to a hill that's bare except for one lone tree. And it's overlooking the city at night. And he opens up his new picnic basket. When you first saw this, did you recognize this tree and hill? Yeah. Okay, so did I. It's from the flashback, right? Mm-hmm. So he opens up his new picnic basket and places a rock next to the tree. And he overlays it with a piece of fabric. And then he sets a picture of his son on top of it. It seems like a thought-out ritual. Every item is intentional. And he lights two incense sticks and sets them alongside with some gifts of fruit. He says, happy birthday, my son. If only I could have helped you. And the tears start to stream down his face. And he sings the song that he sang earlier to the little boy. Leaves from the vine. Falling so slow, like fragile, tiny shells, drifting in the foam. Little soldier boy, come marching home. Brave soldier boy, comes marching home. Gutting. Yeah. Just heart-wrenching. Yeah. Oof. Uh, and it made me wonder, like, to what degree did Iroh become the person that we know him as, you know, after the death of his son? Yeah. Like, like, was he different before? Right. Uh, cause we only get that one glimpse of the letter and it seems like Iroh, but he's also like laughing about like, if we don't burn the city to the ground, you know, like there's, yeah. there's a little bit difference to him there. Um, so it made me wonder that it also made me wonder like how much of him in Bossing say like he, he this is this is a story of Iroh mm. effortlessly just doing like really good deeds. Yeah. In Bossing say. And I wonder how much of this is in his mind is atoning for what he did at Bossing say. Yeah. I mean we, we used to talk about Iroh as like, is he a war criminal? Like what happened there? And it's like so I, I just wonder how much of his life like is there a inflection point in his life where he uh put himself on the path that he is on right now. Yeah. He and each of the people that he helps, they're all men. They're all in different stages of life. You start with the child and the the teenage boy and then the mm-hmm. adult. And all those versions of advice, you know, that he would also give his own son had 
you know, mm-hmm. had he been given more of a chance to do so. Um, yeah, I think to, yeah, to what you were saying too, it's like, um, and not to make this about me, but, <laughs> um, when a family member of mine died, it was my, my sister's daughter. And I talked to Dr. Nelson here at Bethel, Ruth Nelson about it. And she was like, Oh, the loss of a child is one is like the biggest stressor that any human being can ever have. Right. Mm-hmm. And like fundamentally changes who you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember talking to one of my uh, pastors and he was saying, yeah, when a moment like that happens and you lose someone so near and dear and it is out of the blue, it's like either you can go down a path where you harden yourself or you soften yourself. And so like here we see somebody who's actively has to choose probably every day to be soft and like because every day he's thinking about that. Like you you can't not, right? Like it's your child Mm -hmm. is a future that you lost. It will exactly what you just said is, is exactly right. I mean, I remember talking to uh, another one of our psychology professors, Kathy Nevins, when I was a student. Um, and she talked about like when you lose your when your parents die, it's losing your past. Like yeah. that, that's the kind of grieving you have when your spouse dies, it's losing your present. And when your child dies, it's losing your future. And, yeah. and like that, and it's really interesting to think about the trajectory of Iroh's life. I mean, he loses his son. He also loses his birthright. Yeah. He loses, like, like all of this stuff is stripped away, you know, in some ways because of the loss of his son. Yeah. And and it, it makes me think about why, you know, why does he leave Ba Sing Se when he does? It may be because it's like, what is the point? Yeah. What is the future now without him? And, and yeah, it's, 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 there's so, so much more I want to know about him. Yeah. Um, and but I'm also nervous. I, you know, like, 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 I also love how delicately he is portrayed. Yes. So we don't get too much. We don't get too much explanation. Yeah. Yeah. He is so beloved. And it, yeah, it, I wonder if he thinks of his life because he's, I mean, I don't know how old he is, but it's hard to know. It's hard yeah. to tell how old he is. But so many things, like you said, have happened to him. But probably the one defining thing is like, Oh, before my son died or after my son died. Like, that's probably how he splits his life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, I mean, like the, the moonflower at the start, like, is so clearly describing his experience of like in the shade, in like these dark parts. That's where you grow and that's where you, that's Mm -hmm. like in the shadows and actually like close to sorrow and loss and pain is where you find joy and hope and growth. Right. And, um, so I think that's really beautiful. I don't. That's why. I mean, I always cry right. at the end of this. And then, the, the, just to to add one more little punch to it, yeah. This, this tale has a dedication at the end of it. Too. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yes. So it's dedicated to. Is it Mako? Is yep. that how you say his name? Who is the voice of Iroh? Mm-hmm. Who uh, pa- passed away at the end of season two? But I mean, he. It was before this episode aired, so they added that piece to it. So in season three, there is another voice actor who who finishes up the the run of Iroh. Yeah. So so sad. Yeah. It's so it's it's but even that moment's also beautiful because when I when I watch this, I'm like, man, it's weird they have a dedication in the middle of the show. Mm-hmm. But then I looked up who that was and thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's really sweet uh, that they did that. 
Um, okay, so should we go to Aang? Let's keep, let's okay. keep going, yeah. Again, another like tone shift from really yeah. sad to Aang flying around with animals. So we get Aang soaring high above Ba Sing Se, and he's on his glider. And he lands in a street with lines of cages that are housing large, exotic, hybrid animals. So we know him flying over the city is him looking for Appa, any mm-hmm. signs he can find. And he sees, man, there's so many different hybrid animals. I didn't write them all down, but like dragonflies that are literal like dragon mm-hmm. flies in a cage. Um, they're unable to spread their wings. Um, he walks through these rows of animals and each one makes eye contact with him. But uh, then they, they look sad and terrified. And he approaches an armadillo cougar lion something that seems right yeah and he says hey there little fella you look hungry and he extends a hand towards the animal but the animal roars at him and then shrinks away into the shadows like rolls into a ball yeah that's the armadillo part (laughs) yes and uh the zookeeper walks up behind ang and he's sweeping the ground and he says they are hungry the Dai Li won't give me any money because the kids stopped coming and the kids won't come because my zoo's nasty and broke and Aang gestures to a nearby cage, asking about what animal that is. And the z- zookeeper answers, oh, that's a rabbiroo. I wish I could get her a big open prairie. I'd let her hop her way to happiness. And she sits slumped over in the cage that's much too small for her. So Aang thinks up a plan to use some of the space outside of the city, I'm guessing between the outer and inner wall, yep. right? Yep. To create a newer, larger zoo. And the zookeeper asks how he plans to, to transport all these creatures. And Aang reassures him, don't worry, I'm great with animals. And then we cut to a chaotic scene of uh, this dozens. This was the most predictable thing. Yes, of dozens of animals wreaking havoc in the streets of Ba Sing Se. We have a baboon rhino that's charging the streets. There's a platypus bear that comes into play. He's stalking some screaming civilians. The Rabiru's eating cabbages from a cart, and we uh, see the the cabbage owner who yells, My cab! Oh, forget it. He gives up. Aang uh, watches the chaos unfold and says, This was so much easier in my head. But then he snaps his finger um, and uh, pulls out a bison whistle, and he realizes, Oh, I have something that can help. And he bends the air from his breath into the whistle so that it causes a rippling, reverberating sound that catches... That was pretty cool. Yeah, catches the attention of each of the animals. And Aang flies through the streets on his air ball then with a stampede of exotic hybrid animals following in his wake. And the zookeeper is out by the gate and he's pleading with the guards to, you know, open the city gates. And they're like, why should we do that for you? And he gestures to a stampede of animals. And so they do so. And just in time for the animals to charge out of the inner city of Bossing Say. Yeah, there's a very like a uh, Pied Piper of Hamlin feel to this, like like, like ang- ang- yeah. leading, leading the animals away. Yep, yep. And he flies out then in front of the animals, and as they continue to stampede, he earthbends this large wall around them, like multiple football field sizes. Uh, He cuts them off from escaping, but he doesn't stop there, and he stands in the middle of this kind of stadium he created and bends smaller enclosures. He bends a small ravine, some jagged towers, and we see a shot from above, and he created Aang's zoo. And the visitors are already flocking to the zoo. You have, like, kids running and laughing through it. The rabbiru is drinking from a small pound in its enclosure. And Aang turns to the zookeeper who is awestruck and says, 
how do you like your new facilities? And the zookeeper said, excellent job. You should think about working with animals for a living. But behind them, a child tugs on his mother's sleeve and points into the enclosure and says, mommy, Miss Snowflake got out of the house again. And we see a shot of a cat. And then another child looks into the another enclosure and says, Fluffykins, what are you doing down there? And Aang realizes sheepishly that he didn't just call all the exotic animals in Bossing Say, but also the house cats and the dogs followed him too. And the zookeeper says, on second thought, stick to saving people. So here's one of the things that I thought about when I saw this. I wondered how often do the people of Bossing Say get out of the inner walls? Mm. <clears throat> Because, I mean, so Aang is doing this to get the animals out there. Right. But are, like, are the people also, in essence, caged up in that same way? Thinking back to Zuko last episode saying this city's a prison. Yeah. You know, um, and, and it's, you know, it seems like the um, the zoo is in the lower ring area. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's yep. like like, I, like Aang is, is liberating these animals, but he's also liberating these people a little bit, too, yeah. like breaking them out of the walls into this, you know, big pastoral area as well. Yeah, I never thought of it, like, metaphorically as the people being in their own cages and their own, like, restricted spaces, too small, not cared about, not given any funding or money when they're on the outer ring. And then that Aang is like, he is a symbol of hope to come in and, and to liberate people. It's also a very Aang-like story in that he creates a huge mess by thinking he can do something, <laughs> creates a huge mess, and then uses his powers to create something beautiful. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that seems very consistent with what we see from Aang. Absolutely. Um, and that it's for the animals. Yeah. I love yeah. it so much. And it's like, it starts out, he doesn't even need to say much about Appa, but we know that's in the back of his mind the whole time. And right. he can't care for his friend. So he's extending that care to other people, similar to Iroh and his son and the loss there. It is sort of funny that he's walking around the zoo like, oh, maybe Appa's here. It's like, uh, these are nothing compared to the size of Appa. Although actually some of the big animals that we see are enormous. Yeah, there was like the rhino, the bamboo, baboon rhino. That was pretty yeah. big. Yeah. But Yeah. Sweet one. Should we go to the next? Let's do it. Okay, Tale of Sokka. So Sokka walks through Bossing Say all on his own at night, and we see him lazily tossing his boomerang and catching it over and over again as he I walks. I love that shot. Me too. It's like from behind, and there's these pretty night lanterns on either side of him. And he peeks into the open window of a, of a beautiful studio, and a young woman in robes is standing on a stage and presenting to a group of women. And those women are sitting cross-legged on the ground on their own mats. And the woman on stage slowly and expertly articulates the lines of her poem. And Sokka is taken by the woman, maybe more so than the potter or poetry. And he leans on the window, his hands resting in his hands, and he's love-struck. And he says, ah, poetry. And behind him, an ostrich horse fusses with its owner and kicks backwards, causing Sokka to crash through the window as the women all gasp at him. And he climbs out of the window and into the room, and he says, I am so sorry. Something struck me in the rear. I just wound up here? And he looks at the girls from the stage, and they all start giggling in delight because he had created an unintentional haiku. And the teacher stands up from her mat in the in the middle of the crowd. She slowly claps, but 
she kind of challenges without saying anything. She challenges Sokka to a poetry slam. I love that. Like I did not expect after like the Iroh story and the Aang story that we'd get like a poetry slam rap battle kind of thing. <laughs> yes. it's, it's sort of great. It's so good. Um, with somebody who, like Toph said earlier, is like not not a society person. You right, know what I right. mean? Like somebody who doesn't fit with the rules of the city. So uh, she says, five, seven, then five. Syllables mark a haiku, remarkable oaf. And Sokka, impressed with himself, accepts and responds to her poetry battle and says, they call me Sokka. That is in the water tribe. I am not an oaf. And he counts out the last five syllables on his fingers as he says them just to make sure. And the teacher says, chittering monkey. In the spring, he climbs treetops and thinks himself tall. And the students ooh and awe at this. And Sokka says, you think you're so smart with your fancy little words. This is not so hard. Uh, And the girls then ooh again. And the teacher says, whole seasons are spent mastering the form, the style. None calls it easy. Sokka responds, I calls it easy. Like I paddle my canoe, I'll paddle yours too. And then he smacks his butt irreverently and the girls laugh even louder. I love that 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 in all of these, like, you know, you talked about Toph's comment about culture and it's like Sokka is both good at creating haikus, like working within those rules. But at the same time, it's like everything, everything that the teacher is doing is like this elevated, beautiful language. And Sokka is yes. just like, I am... Saying the syllables right. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. Like, not even, like, the grammar isn't even correct, right? right? And he's smacking his butt. It's great. The teacher responds, um, obviously getting a little more flustered and angry with him, but she says, there's nuts and there's fruits. In fall, the clean plum drops, always to be squashed. And she takes a plum from her pocket, drops it to the ground, and then stomps on it. I love this. That was such a great, a great image. (laughs) And Sokka says, squish, squash, sling that slang. I'm always right back at you, like my boomerang. And he whips out his boomerang, and the girls are ooing again. And the teacher walks back to her seat, which I felt like, did she lose? Is that what she's saying, or is she done with him? Well, I think she's maybe setting a trap. Ah, okay. Because she doesn't respond with the poem so then he does respond with, he lays down yes, another one. and yeah. he gets pretty cocky about it. So Sokka celebrates what he maybe thinks is his victory. And he says one last haiku from the stage. He says, that's right, I'm Sokka. It's pronounced with an Akka. Young ladies, I rocked ya. And the audience goes silent. And the girls start glaring at him. And he counts on his fingers and he realizes his mistake. And then a large guard, like, bouncer type. Yeah, because a, 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 a woman's haiku studio needs an enormous bouncer. Amazing. Grabs him by the collar and tosses him outside, saying, that's one too many syllables there, bub. And outside in the street, Sokka picks himself up from the ground and shrugging and says, poetry. Which I feel like you could just substitute with women. Yeah, but. yeah. So what does this tell us about Sokka? Sokka's always trying to find his identity, right? Mm -hmm. This whole series is him trying to do that. Uh, And it always seems like the identity he chooses is something that's like peripheral that he shouldn't have even thought of, right? But it's like a random occurrence. And then he's like, oh, that's cool. I like that. There's a bouncer involved. That could be me. 
I also think the thing not to miss here is he's really good at this. Yeah, he's a natural. Yeah, like like again, this is Sokka doing this thing. I mean, it it is interesting, right? He is stepping into what is in this case like a woman's world, right? Like yeah. like this is and and he is um you know, so so he, yeah, you said he's he's natural at this. He's good at this. He's he's smart. He can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, at least for a while, he can. <laughs> and you think about him and Katara, and I think Katara is much more eloquent and articulate, and Sokka can be, like, goofy and, I don't know, the things he says are always snarky and dry. But you're right, like, he actually can fit the mold of what of what a poetry slam requires and does it by his own rules. And right. And it's really cool. Right, right. I love it. Yeah. No, and, and it, it also just provides, like, a little bit of... it. it, it sort of shows what Sokka does in the show too that he's smarter than you expect mm-hmm. and he prov- and he provides a little bit of lightness to things that can be I mean this this episode has some dark sad moments mm-hmm. um and and this it wouldn't it wouldn't be fitting if Sokka had like a overly touching you know moment like Sokka we need a funny moment and Sokka provides it in this yeah also the boy has like gone through some heartbreak multiple times mm-hmm. so it's kind of nice to see him like just stare in a window at women right. reading poetry like in a really kind of sweet way there's also there's also an element though here of um overconfident Sokka like in Kiyoshi like yes. you know that he goes into another studio filled with women right and <laughs> thinks he can best them and uh they eventually prove that he cannot yeah the boy's still growing he's still blooming right he'll right. get there okay tale of Zuko let's do it okay so we start at the tea shop and Zuko is carrying a tray up to Iroh, but he's looking kind of paranoid. And he says, uncle, we have a problem. One of the customers is on to us. Don't look now, but there is a girl over there at the corner table. She knows we're Fire Nation. Which is interesting because in the last episode, we had somebody burst in and declare their Fire Nation. So, <laughs> so I think the word paranoid is right that like, because again, although Jet seems crazy, Zuko and Iroh both know that Jet was right, and now so so this actually does feel like there is this kind a little bit of a kind of continuation from the mm-hmm. last episode. And Iroh though catches a glimpse a glimpse of the teenage girl who shyly sips her tea in the corner. With and she has two long braids of dark hair, Earth Kingdom clothes. She's really cute. And Iroh says, "You're right, Zuko. I've seen that girl in here quite a lot. Seems to me like she has a little crush on you." And Zuko says, "What?" But as he says that, the girl is already at uh, right behind them, interrupting them and thanking them for the tea. She pays her bill, but she asks Zuko his name. And Zuko is wide-eyed and speaks mechanically like he does. He is not as good at ad-libbing as Katara. He says, As we'll continue to see in this story. <laughs> my name's Lee. My uncle and I just moved here. Like, she didn't even ask that. Right. But he had to throw it in. I think he's rehearsed that line over and over <laughs> yes. again. Uh, there's probably been multiple times where Iroh has turned to him and said lee 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 remember your lee (laughs) (laughs) yes Uh, she introduces herself to him as Jin, and asks zuko if he'd like to go on a date with her sometime but before zuko has a second to respond iroh slides in and he says he'd love to so the date is officially on and it's set for sundown in front of the shop and as she turns to leave a shocked zuko glares at iroh i love Jin's. uh confidence yeah me too yeah she just goes up and asks him on a date amazing she's not like 
Well, maybe you'll ask me. She's just like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> and uh, I also love matchmaker Iroh. Mm-hmm. Another thing that he excels at. So at night, Zuko emerges from the shop and he's wearing a dark green Earth Kingdom suit. And his hair is gelled and parted down the middle. Not great. Yeah. But he tried. And Jin walks up and rustles his hair, telling him that he looks cute. Like, it's cute that he put in the effort. And Zuko pats his hair down from her playful gesture and says, it took my uncle 10 minutes to do my hair. (laughs) I just want to see it. I know, me too. It's like the best image. (laughs) He's probably like coaching him the whole time on what he can say to the girl. And like, (laughs) I love it. His hair does look like a very old man tried to style it in a yeah. way that he thought yeah. kids kids wear their hair. The young people do, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we cut to a scene of Zuko and uh, Jin sitting on a patio of a restaurant in warm lighting. It looks really comfortable. And the food looks good, I gotta yeah. say. This, this one made me hungry. It did remind me of sitting outside and eating food in Seoul. Uh, and Jin eagerly asks question after question of Ju- Zuko. And Zuko um, nervously plays with the food on his plate with his chopsticks as she does so. She asks him, what do you like to do for fun? He says, nothing. And the server comes up to ask if Zuko and his girlfriend would care for dessert. And Zuko bellows, she's not my girlfriend. So much so that other, <laughs> other people dining turn to look at his outburst. And he calms down, though, and watches Jin eat her noodles. And for her, she saw that, but she was still cool about it. Like, and I she- love that she's just like, again, just like aggressively, constant, or confidently going after the noodles, too. Like, it's, yeah. there's nothing delicate about the way she's eating. <laughs> yes, she, yes. And, uh, Zuko, and those looked good, too. Oh, they did. Zuko notes that and says, you have uh, quite an appetite for a girl. And Jin says, oh, thanks. <laughs> And she asks him where he and his uncle lived before bossing say. Zuko kind of stumbles around for an answer. He's terrible at lying on the spot with her. So he says, we were um, part of this traveling um, circus. And Jin... How has he not come up with the backstory? <laughs> and maybe just because he's so cold all the time that and answers in one word that like no one's going to really follow up with questions. But Jin is so confident that she wants to get to know yeah. him. Right? And so... Uh, She's like, wait, 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 let me guess what you were in the circus. And she says, a juggler. And Zuko's like, sure, yeah, I, I juggled. And so Jin grabs a bunch of objects from the table and looks excitedly at Zuko asking her to teach, asking him to teach her. And she holds out these things in front of him and her eyes are big and she has a sweet smile and Zuko is taken by it. So he grabs the objects from her and throws them into the air, but they crash on the table and on his head and Jin holds back laughter. It's pretty it's, endearing. It's, it's interesting because he sh- he could have easily just been like, we're in a restaurant. I'm not going to juggle here. Yeah. But he's like, okay. I'll. Yeah. And, and it, it's almost like he threw them up thinking, maybe I know how to juggle. <laughs> maybe this will just happen. Yeah. And he really, like, he really does like her. I think he wants to fit the image of right. her that he's uh, giving her, right? Um, but she, she holds back laughter. And then after dinner, we see her take Izuko to one of her favorite places in the city. And she holds his hand and weaves him through these different streets in the night to what she called the firelight fountain. She said, the lamps are, uh, make the water sparkle and reflect in the pool in the most beautiful way. But when they come to the mountain in the middle of the square, it's covered in darkness. The tall torches surrounding the pool aren't lit. And um, Zuko sees that she's really upset by it. And so he tells her to close her eyes. 
And as she puts her hands to her eyes, Zuko makes sure that the streets are entirely empty. And then he firebends light quickly into each of the torches and into the lanterns that are floating in the fountain. I did notice it's been a long time since I've seen Zuko firebend, so it felt good. Yeah. It had to feel good to him to be like, oh, yeah, there, I can, I know how to do this. He looked smooth when he did it, too. It yeah. was like quick and, yep. And so he said, okay, now you can look. And Jin uncovers her eyes and is awestruck by the view and impressed by Zuko, but also confused at how this could have happened, how it could have been lit. It's so interesting because this story starts with him talking about how she knows we're firebenders. He's paranoid about that. And then he like, this is fairly close to Iroh warming his tea. Yeah. Where it's like, uh, you know, if she could do a little bit of math here, it's like these things will not light themselves. Even if you had a like a, a lighter, you couldn't do it that quickly. Yeah. So it is interesting that he just sort of, it's like he, he lets his guard down that way as well. Mm-hmm. So they stand in the light of the lanterns and Jin grabs Zuko's hand in hers and she leans in for a kiss, but Zuko abruptly lifts something between their mouths, stopping the kiss and saying, I brought you something. It's a coupon for a free cup of tea. It was my uncle's idea. He thinks you're our most valuable customer. And I could hear Iroh saying that. Mm -hmm. Couldn't you hear him saying that? Uh, She thanks Zuko um, and she tells him that she has something for him too. If he closes his eyes and they kiss briefly and Zuko kisses her back, but then he pulls away and says, that, yeah, that was really interesting. Though. Yeah. Like, like, like it's one thing I expected her to kiss him. I didn't expect him to like come back and kiss her yeah. a second time. Yes, for sure. That was super telling. <laughs> yes. And then, but then he does pull back after he kisses her back and says, um, he can't, you know, things are complicated and he leaves her there in the square. Now, it made me think about, like, what is complicated? Is it the fact that he's a firebender that's complicated? Is there other other pieces that make mm. make this complicated for him? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, as we get these hints of, like, Zuko May stuff, but I don't know if, like, Zuko's part of that at all or anything. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, back at their home uh, by the tea shop, Iroh peers out the window. He's clearly like waiting for Zuko to come home. Um, but then Zuko appears behind him in the doorway and Iroh like busies himself and pretends like he's just like watering a plant. He's such a mom. <laughs> yes. And Iroh asks him how his night went and Zuko walks a- immediately into his room and slams the door shut. How disappointed were you when you saw that? I know. I'm like, oh, come on, Zuko. Just like, mm, yeah. And then. But then <laughs> he slides the door open just a crack, looks at his uncle and said, it was nice before disappearing again into his room. And Iroh is pleased. I will say as a, as a parent of, wow, a child who's basically Zuko's age, <laughs> like this was very uh, realistically rendered. <laughs> yes. The like the, both the not wanting to talk, but then also like, I think he kind of wanted to tell Iroh yeah. it was nice because he didn't have to do that. And he did. Yep. Yep. And in the shortest answer possible, mm-hmm. but get, Yeah. And they both were so happy. But it's, it's it's interesting that he didn't say it was fine. He said it was nice. Yeah. Like that's, that's a much, like, warmer word. Yeah. It's so cute. I love this one. What were your thoughts of this one? Uh, just that... That there is this sense that Zuko is trying to... If not find home in Bossing, say, to kind of 
there's elements, there's moments where he's trying to make the most of it. I mean, he yeah. clearly cares about her experience of that night. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't sure he was going to. Yeah. You know, uh, so, and the fact that he draws attention to himself by trying to juggle. Yeah. Um, and again, I really do think he thought, well, maybe I could do this and this would impress her. And then when he really puts himself out there and, and lights the lanterns, like, um, it, it it's growth in him that I didn't expect. Yeah. Because here we have someone who has only ever been burned by anyone who claimed to love him, mm-hmm. except for Iroh, obviously. But, um, and like, you were saying he let his guard down, and I think like it's really just that he's able to trust somebody again, you mm-hmm. know, like, and, or he's willing to try. I mean, he doesn't right. really have a reason to trust her exactly, but he's yeah. willing to try. Yeah. There. And to do that with a stranger, I think says a lot about him. Uh, so again, I feel like this episode, every episode is like somebody's, somebody's uh, discomfort that they're like growing in. Right. Yeah, and his absolutely. is like, I can't trust another person. I'm paranoid about them. They think I'm fire nation. And then at the end too, like actually firebend in front of her though her eyes are closed says something right right okay last one let's do it okay the tale of momo so we start out inside of one of momo's dreams it's those dreamlike sequences that avatar is so good at doing and he's flying high above the clouds with appa and they are eating plums from a gigantic tree above the clouds it always makes me wonder when we see appa like sometimes we see him eat like an entire like multiple bales of hay at one time it's like does one plum really do anything for him? Is it like a mint? Yeah. Like a dinner mint. Yeah. it's But it would be even smaller. It would be like a peppercorn. <laughs> like you see Momo. And now granted, it's Momo's dream. He throws a plum at, <laughs> at, at Appa. Yeah, that's true. And he eats more than one. <laughs> well, Appa eats one. I, I suppose, yeah, the fact that it is Momo's dream. <laughs> He's always looking for food. Um, okay. So, uh, though, uh, in the middle of this kind of nice dreamy thing we hear a sound of thunder that jolts momo awake and he jumps from the windowsill of their apartment in bossing say into Sokka's green bag that's hanging nearby i love the green bag like I know. That, that 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 has been the thing that's consistently been there and it's like the home for momo yeah he peeks his head out of the bag after a second and he realizes that on his hand is a clump of appa's fur which i think was was it in that bag from when Aang tried to spread it to... It must be. To... Did he use that bag, though? I don't remember. He maybe did. Wow. I want to go back and check that. Yeah. That's cool. If that's the case, that is super cool. Yeah. Um. So it's a significant clump of fur. Yeah. Yes, it is. And um, Momo sniffs it and he ties it around his wrist and then he chases what he thinks is a large Appa-sized shadow that he sees moving across the ground outside, similar to when Aang thought he saw Appa in the desert. And Momo lands in a tree and looks up to where the shadow's coming from, but he only sees a storm cloud. And his big ears sink downwards, and he stares longingly at the fur around his wrist. But then he chirps and looks across a series of rooftops, and behind one is a white fluffy figure. And so he flies toward it, only to realize that it was a tree with white leaves, obscured by the rooftop and we hear him whimper so he flies by himself through the dark and stormy streets and he lands on a barrel in an alleyway to drink the water from it and his tail swishes as he does so i feel like every time he stops to eat or drink something i get worried for him that something's gonna come attack him i know he yes he 
Bossing say has not been friendly to him. In that no, way. I feel that he is always getting into trouble. And his tail swishes and he knocks over a piece of wood as he drinks. And it alerts these nearby pygmy pumas, just like it sounds, really small pumas, to his presence. And they roar and chase Momo through the streets. Yeah, we should say these are terrifying cats. Yes. When I say really small, they're like Momo-sized, but they are pumas Mm -hmm. with claws and teeth. Um, And they want to eat Momo. (laughs) Uh, So they, they chase him through the streets. And even though Momo can fly, he can't escape the pumas who jump up and scale the rooftops, with one batting him down from the sky. And Momo then races by foot out of the alley and into a crowd of people in the street who are watching a street performance. And we see a man's arm reach down, grab Momo, and put a green hat on his head and toss him into the middle of the circle, where he's made to dance and perform alongside performing monkeys in mm-hmm. vests. Yeah, like organ grinder monkeys. Kind of. <laughs> and I just love that Momo gets into it. He yeah. starts doing his own dance. He starts doing like choreographed dances with the other monkeys like they climb up on top of him and momo is just like a he's able to freestyle it yeah like it he, he does a good job um he he definitely plays the part so the pumas are stalking him though from the outside of this crowd and they lunge at momo who flies off from the crowd but the cats are able to jump and grab him from the air and all three of them are pulling him down and pinning him to the ground But before they can attack him, a net covers all of them together. It's kind of like when that fish or like, you know, those classic scenes of like there's a fish or there's a creature that's trying to get you. And then Mm -hmm. the bigger one is right behind it and it gets that one. Right. (laughs) It's like what this is. Uh, We see a man locking two cages in the back of his truck, one with Momo and the other with the three pumas. And I'm guessing it's like an animal control officer. I don't know. Seems something like that. Yeah. Um, He seems sketchy. Obviously a bad guy in this story. And Momo whimpers and rubs Appa's fur on his cheek for comfort as the vehicle starts driving off. And the vehicle stops outside of a butcher shop with carcasses of animals hanging from the ceiling in the orange tinted light. And Momo watches the captor and the butcher chat with each other. And we only hear them, though, through Momo's ears, which is just a bunch of gibberish. And they're gesturing menacingly at the caged animals in the truck, clearly trying to make a deal. And the pygmy pumas meow and snarl in the cage, and they're trying to get out. And I love this detail because underneath all of the sounds, we can hear the steady and quick heartbeats of a terrified Momo. And I think that, to me, was like, showed how great the the writers are at like making you into momo mm-hmm. like you because we don't get words so we have to yeah, yeah there's no words this entire episode we're experiencing the world as momo does now they're at a butcher shop is this as dark as i think it is yeah okay this would be the end for them right for yeah. momo and the pumas yeah so so that guy's not going to pick up food for them no i don't think so okay <laughs> So Momo looks at the again children's show. <laughs> yeah, right. And they like the whole the whole show. They're anthropomorphizing Momo. Like Momo is a part of the crew, as Sokka is, or Toph, mm-hmm. or Aang. Um, yeah, it's it's real dark. And um, so Momo looks at the lock and the key on his cage, and he intelligently grabs at the key and twists it, and is able to free himself from his cage. And so he jumps out of the truck, and uh, he's about to fly off, but he looks back and sees the pumas that are whimpering. 
And so he returns and he unlocks their cage and he lets his enemies go free. This reminds me of Aang in the Blue Spirit episode. Right mm. at the end, he has the, Aang has the opportunity to just leave. But he sees Zuko's knocked out sitting there. And it's this moment where he does this pause and then he takes takes him with him. Mm-hmm. It's really sweet. Uh, Momo and then Momo and the pygmy pygmy pumas. We then see them sitting high on a rooftop overlooking Bossing Say at night, and the pumas are purring and they're cuddling Momo. And one of the pumas then grabs the fur off of Momo's wrist in his mouth, and then he runs off with it. And, and- th- at this moment, I was like. This is how much I suckered in I was. I like was upset at him for taking it. Like, you don't know what that is. Yeah, exactly. Me too. I was like kind of heartbroken the first time I saw it of like, oh, that's his one connection to his friend. But the Pumas were trying to lead him somewhere. And so the Puma led him through back streets and he drops the clump of fur in a small ditch in the ground. And there's like a little bit of water collecting in it because it's starting to rain. And Momo smells the clump of the fur there. And he wraps himself around it and sleeps in the ditch, which we realize as we pan out a little bit is Appa's footprint. And raindrops begin to fall as the Pumas keep watch of their friend. And that's how it ends. That's great. I love that they that they ended with this one, which circles back to, I mean, this is the tale of Momo, but it's also a tale of Appa and Momo. And, you know, it starts mm-hmm. with that dream. And it's about, uh, it's about Momo not giving up that quest. Yep. You know, in the same way Aang had given up the quest, right? Like that that both of their episodes involve him looking for Appa. Because even as Aang pulls all those animals out of the city with the bison whistle, you assume he's like, well, maybe Appa will show up in that zoo too. Yeah. You know? I, yes. This is a, I cry at this one too. Those, the Iroh and the Momo. I just, it's really tragic to like have the memories of somebody that you miss that's mm-hmm. always around you. That little pe- that piece of fur is is deeply meaningful. Yeah, you know? and like see thinking you see somebody in the street and then real- realizing like oh wait no that can't be that right. person's gone or even him him smelling it right it's like it's like tapping into this sort of sense memory yeah yeah right now my cats are separated Sam I have one cat living in South Korea and one cat living here in Minnesota and sometimes I'm like Siggy oh you probably think of Scout when you look at that brush <laughs> you look at that clump of fur but I don't think that's the case but you never know. Right, right. You never right, know. Right. We're not in their minds. I also love by ending on this image, they do propel us back into the story. Because mm-hmm. this, you know, the story, uh, I mean, we know what the title of the next episode is. Um, so the story is going to propel us back into the quest for Appa storyline or, you know, what happened to Appa storyline. So, you know, as much as this is this weird little departure episode, too, where we kind of dropped out of the overarching narrative and did these little character sketches instead. Yep. Like, it ends with pushing us back into that. And I will say, with your reservations about the shift in tone from the last episode to this one, the tone is very much similar with Momo moving into the next episode. Because mm-hmm. these two are paired together probably some of my favorite and also the most gutting episodes for mm-hmm. me. So I remember the next one very well. And uh, it, it does like continue with the same, even like the writing style seems really similar. Right, right. So so other, I mean, we've, we've sort of talked about themes and observations as we've gone through this. Are there any other big themes or observations you want to talk about? Um, I mean, it's interesting to think of it as like, this is one day in the lives of each of these people. And mm-hmm. like, 
how long are they inbossing, say, you know, and like how many of these things are happening all the time. It makes me curious. Like in a way, it almost seems like, uh, like a time lapse or like, like showing us that there are, there is a lot happening between these two episodes or like, but yeah. They, this is a sandwich between two episodes where a lot of time has passed. You know absolutely. I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. And I think like, I, I mean, I left with some questions about like, in this episode, where is the Daily? Is the Daily mm. just out of frame on every one of these shots watching them? Um, and so are, so is, is the stuff they're doing, which seems maybe a little less um, focused on the overall mission in part because they're aware they're being watched? Yeah. You know, like, like that could be, I also like, I also wonder where's Jet. Like, I, I'm worried about him now. So, you know, he moved from this guy that I was like, I don't know, not a huge Jet fan to like, actually, like I, like I said last episode, I really care about him. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, we need to know, we need to know what happened to him and is he okay or, or what is the effect of him on this? So, so I like, yeah. I have lots of Daily and Jet questions, which is what this episode's not about. Um, but I do think, I do think that they are, telling of each of the characters and i think that's so so ultimately uh do you find this sort of you know for for what this show is this is a fairly experimental episode do Mm -hmm. you find it i assume you find it successful fulfilling yeah because i think it it does flesh out characters in a way where it's not about story arc necessarily but just them in scenarios we haven't seen before yeah it's also it gives us different glimpses of bossing, say, as the city itself, because you have, I mean, also, like, you have, you start out with Toph and Katara and the whole gang actually just, like, in the upper, what is it, the upper ring of the mm-hmm. city, uh, where everything is watched and proper and, like, cultural ministry is around. But then, like, Aang chooses to be in the lower ring and, like, walk down in the streets with, people that he like is more comfortable with mm-hmm. and uh and then in the zuko episode he's in the lower ring too and it seems like it would be a great place to live yeah don't you think yeah like i want to go on a date where he did yeah yeah it's, yeah I-, I will say i think the three most successful stories mm. are the ones which feel like they have the least departure from where we were just at so sure. it's iro zuko and momo yeah the other three i do feel a little bit of the what are you guys doing? It's <laughs> yeah. like, like you, you, it seems like you have bigger fish to fry. <laughs> yeah. Like why um, is Sokka at a poetry slam? <laughs> right. Well, at least, at least that one is like this, you know, like, like, like I just, I think like they should be so troubled by what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact that there is no, there is no darkness around the edges of this episode in, and by darkness, I mean like Daily darkness, mm-hmm. which is sure, just sure. like, that should be haunting everything that they're experiencing. Now, Momo is less tapped into that. So his ep- his episode fits. Iroh and Zuko, this actually feels like an extension of, mm-hmm. of them, what we saw in the last episode, where they were starting to sort of make a life for themselves in Ba Sing Se. Yeah. So it's, it's more that it's more the Aang gang that I feel a little bit like, well, does this... This yeah. this that part feels a little out of time. The other three, I think, are I, are the most successful. They're also probably, to my mind, the best of the three. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I agree. Um, I will come to the defense of this episode a little bit, Sam, because I love it. Yeah. Where I think 
so much happens to the inking that maybe, maybe the daily, the cultural the ministry, overwatching, whatever, maybe all of that's like, man, it's just, it's just another day in the life of the inking. Yeah, and, and you're right. It, there's the passage of time thing that's like, this could be weeks later. Yeah. Or, well, probably not weeks later because, like, there is a clock here. But it could be, like, a few days later because part of me is like, why are they not sitting around those sinks at the beginning talking about what do we do next? Right. It's like, well, maybe they've already had that conversation. Right. And, you know, so so I, I just need to accept that. It, it's just partially, like, the last one is so propulsive. Like, mm. oh, my gosh. We just... We just uncovered all of this stuff, and then it's like, yeah, now we're we're gonna not touch that. And this show is famous for that, yeah. Where it's like we give you something and then we take it away. For example, Azula hasn't been around for a while. Yeah, I mean, she was in the drill, but now we've had two episodes without her, and I don't see her necessarily coming back in the next episode. Right. You know. Um. Yeah. So. So. I feel like there's so much stuff in Bossing say that it's like we can put the Fire Nation to the side for a while. Yeah. You know, and maybe there's so much happening in Bossing say that we can put the Daily aside for a while too. But can I'm ask, excited for where we're headed. Can I ask one question? Yeah. Of all the six stories, which is the one you wish could extend longer and you could sit in for longer? Because that's my thing with short stories. I love them so much, yeah. but there's always one or two that I wish I could it's, sit in more. It's for sure either Iroh or Zuko. Yeah. Um. I, I think I love spending time with Iroh so much that I I think I could have spent a lot more of that day. Um, I could have I could have seen him getting each one of the things that he brought up to up that hill, not knowing what he was doing, and then realizing, oh, that's what it was. Mm. Like that would have been great. Mm-hmm. I, I would have loved that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I also like. I know that you like that they don't intersect. I would have loved. <laughs> minor background intersections yeah you know even just like a moment where this herd of animals runs by in the background and you're like what was that <laughs> and then you realize later like oh that's what that was yeah that'd it, be it's, fun it's irrelevant to the story but you're getting this sense that this is all one day sure it'd be really cool you're piecing it together kind of as you go yeah 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 mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I, I really, I, I like this experiment a lot, mm-hmm. um, even for the things that I feel like narratively it's a little dicey <laughs> the way that they pulled away from what they had. I'm willing to, I'm willing to swallow that for the sake of what is really great about this episode. Yeah, for sure. All right, Annie, that is all the time we have. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please email us, channel3900 at gmail.com. Um, go to our website, avatarwithacademics.wordpress.com. You can find all of our old episodes. You can interact with the show. Um, you can find more about the origins of Avatar with Academics. Mm-hmm. Um, subscribe to the Channel 3900 Podcast Network. The, this network is not just Avatar with Academics. There's all kinds of great stuff uh, going on here, so subscribe. You'll get a lot more of Annie. You'll get a lot more of me. you get a lot more of other folks as well. <laughs> um, really good stuff. Uh, and we will be back next week with Book to Earth, Chapter 16. Appa's Lost Days. 